week, the, as Tab mentioned last week, the goal, the, the purpose here of these sermons is to, to take a step back, to, to, to go to a 30,000-foot level and to look at the, the big picture of our Bibles so that as we seek to be a Scripture-saturated people, those who are regularly reading the Bible, we'll be able to better understand what our Bibles are all about, be able to understand what God is up to, be able to see the one story uh, that our Bible is telling. Last week, Tab did a great job of unpacking the theme of God's covenants from, from Genesis 1 and 2, or God's kingdom from Genesis 1 and 2, all the way through the new kingdom, the kingdom in its, uh, when it's come and then perfected in Revelation 21 and 22. And this week, as you can see on your insert in your bulletins, or if you grabbed a fill in the blank, this week we're going to be looking at the theme of God's king or God's covenant. Now, I can certainly in this half-hour sermon here not say everything, and honestly, not say very much about the idea of God's covenant. It is a it is a vast um, just theme in Scripture. So I just wanted to recommend to you um, this book called Covenant by Thomas Schreiner. If you have um, one of the inserts, it's kind of footnoted at the bottom, but if you're looking for a short read to get a better understanding of God's covenant, how we see it in scripture, he is a, a great first step, a first resource for you. And additionally, just want to highlight, it's not in your bulletins, but next week after the service under the gazebo over there, um, we'll just be having a little mini Sunday school class after the service where we're going to look at the idea of God's covenants and go a little bit deeper than we're going to be able to go this morning. So if you have interest in learning more about God's covenants and anything I say this morning piques your interest, you're going to want to join us next Sunday after services. We'll dive in a little bit deeper to that. Well, do let me pray for us, and then we will dive in as we look at this theme of covenant. So pray with me. Oh, Father in heaven, we, we thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word, that you have given us your story that we see unfold throughout scripture, throughout the covenants. And we pray, Lord, Holy Spirit, that you would, would meet us this morning. I do pray that you would open our eyes to see, Lord, just the beauty of the big picture of your, of your Bible. And as we see your story, Lord, that we would more clearly see and understand our story. So meet us this morning, we pray. Amen. Last week we looked at kingdom, this week we're looking at covenant, and it really makes sense that we would do so because when you think about the idea of kingdom and covenant, you can't really separate them in scripture. As Tab highlighted last week, God is bringing his kingdom. This week we want to see that it is through the various biblical covenants that God is bringing his kingdom. Now, as we think about the idea of covenant here, it's important for us to see that this isn't merely some academic uh, lesson for us, some academic topic removed from our daily lives, because covenant just isn't at the center of God's story, like I hope we're going to see today. But the idea of covenant and God's covenant with us is meant to be at the center of our story as well. As you and I try to make sense of our lives, as we think about the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves, the, the truth is we can only tell that story truly when we place our stories in God's story. As we're going to see this morning, God's story is a story about covenant. So if you are here this morning and you're wanting to better understand your story, you're longing to make better sense of your life, if you're here this morning and you're wanting to better understand God's story, 
or if you're wanting to see how God's story transforms your story, I want to invite you to join me as we journey through God's word together, looking at each of the major covenants that he makes with his people in the Bible. Now, a quick qualification. Throughout church history, there have been many different ways that Christians have understood the covenants, many different ways that they have put them together. Uh, This morning, we're just going to see one way of putting them together. This isn't the only or perhaps even the best way to understand the covenants, but it is one that I have found helpful. All right, so let's dive in here. And before looking at the first covenant that God makes in Genesis 1 through 3, I think it would be helpful for us to understand what a covenant is. And perhaps the the best definition, the most simple definition of what a covenant is, is that this comes from Tom Schreiner in this book I highlighted there, is that a covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises To each other. A covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. Here we see that a covenant is is different than a contract. In In a contract, they're very impersonal. Contracts are about themes. But when we come to scripture and we look at the idea of covenants, we see that they are deeply personal. They are all about relationships and desire for intimacy. We see in Bible, one of, the, one of the main covenants, or we see that marriage is called a covenant in Scripture. And I think that that's a great picture of what, what we're after here about the idea that marriage is a covenant because it is about a relationship between a husband and a wife, where the, where the husband and the wife make promises to each other, promises to love and to be faithful to each other. The, the goal of, of a marriage covenant, it's not about things or a contract. You do this for me, I do this for you. But the idea of a marriage covenant is it's all about relationship and growing deeper into relationships. So as we look at the covenants God makes with his people, we need to keep in mind that they are all about relationship, all about desire for relationship. So with that in mind, uh, we see the first covenant that God makes in the Bible is what I'm calling here the covenants of creation. We see this in Genesis 1 through 3. In the beginning, God creates the world and all that is in it. And at the climax of God's creation, he makes Adam and Eve in his image, and he places them in his garden. Out of his love for them, he enters into relationship with him. He, with them. He, he promises to provide for them, to protect them, to love them, and to care for them. This is God entering into relationship with his people out of his love for them. And they were to exercise dominion over creation. Adam and Eve were to be fruitful and to multiply. They were to expand the boundaries of the garden to the ends of the earth. As we look in Genesis 1 and 2, all was freely theirs to eat and to enjoy, except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This was their one prohibition. As long as Adam and Eve did not take from this tree, they would experience God's blessing. But God is clear in his word about the consequences for disobedience. If Adam and Eve do not obey God's word, if they do not keep his covenant, then the punishment will be death. In Genesis 2.17, he says that in the day they eat of it, they will surely die. As Genesis 2 comes to a close, everything in paradise looks perfect. As Tab mentioned last week, the idea of kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule. 
And as we come to the end of Genesis 2, this is exactly what we see. We see Adam and Eve in God's place under God's rule, and they are his people. But unfortunately, we know that that's not the end of the story. In Genesis 3, we see that Adam and Eve disobey God's word, and they experience the covenantal curse. They experience death. And when we hear death here, we need to not think so much about physical death, although that was certainly included for Adam and Eve as we see. But primarily primarily here, the death that God is talking about, the death that Adam and Eve will experience is going to be separation from him. It is going to be loss of relationship. The death that Adam and Eve will experience for for disobedience is being cut off from communion. It's going to be cut off from fellowship with him. And we know the beginning of Genesis 3. This is exactly what they do. They eat the fruit, and eventually they are sent out of God's presence. They are sent out east of Eden, cut off from their relationship with God. But thankfully, we know that before that happens, before Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden, God does something absolutely amazing. Because before he sends them out of the garden, out of his love for his creation, he makes a promise to save his people. He makes a promise to restore his people to himself and eating the fruit and disobeying. They lost relationship with him. But God makes a promise in Genesis 3.15 where he promises that a son will come, the one will come who will reverse the curse, the one who will come and who will restore God's people to relationship with him. We see this in Genesis 3.15. This is the, people call it the the first gospel in all of the scripture, where in cursing the serpent in Genesis 3.15, God says that I will put enmity between you and the woman, that's Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, this son, um, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here we see that Satan will deal a blow to this future promised son, the one who reversed the curse. He will, he, will, um, he will bruise his heel, but this promised son will deal a crushing blow, bruising the head of the serpent. Here, as we see in the rest of Scripture, this is referring to the promised son, the one who will come and defeat Satan's sin and death. So as we look at Genesis 3, there's a, there's a hope that fills Genesis 3. God's people have been exiled from relationship with him. They've been kicked out of the garden, but there is hope in a son, the one who will come, who will reverse the curse, who will restore God's people to relationship with him. It's filled with hope. But we know that the good feelings of Genesis 3 don't last long. As we turn to Genesis 4, we see the effects of sin. We see brother killing brother as it continues. We see neighbor killing neighbor. Death reigns, eventually to the point where in Genesis 6, God says that the thoughts of men and women were only evil continually. We are far away here from God's people in God's place under God's rule. So God makes a plan. He's going, to, he's going to send a flood and he is going to start over. He is going to just wipe everyone off the face of the earth and start over. But then God remembers his covenant. God remembers his promise to Adam and Eve that one of their descendants will crush the head of the serpent. 
And so in his faithfulness to his covenant, in God's faithfulness to his promises, this is going to be a theme we're going to see over and over and over again. In God's faithfulness to his promises, out of his love for his people, in grace, he makes a covenant with Noah. We see this in Genesis 6.18, when God says to Noah, he says that I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your son's wives with you. In addition to saving Noah from the flood and remaining faithful to his promises, in Genesis 9, we see that God also promises to never again flood the earth. Here, in in effect, as we look at this covenant that God makes with Noah, he's promising that all of creation, he's going to preserve all of creation until his plan of redemption can come to pass. He is going to preserve creation until this promised son will come, the one who will right all the wrongs, the one who will restore his people to relationship with him. This is what the Noahic covenant is all about. It's all about preserving the line, preserving creation so that this promised son can come. And as the story continues here, we're left looking for a promised son. We we see that it's not going to be Noah. It's not going to be any of Noah's sons. And so we keep reading until one day we're introduced to a man named Abram, later renamed Abraham. And with the story of Abraham, we see that God's story becomes a little bit clearer. Because in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And this covenant provides clarity to his promise to Adam and Eve, showing that this son who was going to come, this son of Eve, the offspring of the woman, the one who is going to restore God's people to his place, into his presence. It's not just going to be a son of Adam or a son of Eve, but it is going to be the son of Abraham. It's going to be one of Abraham's offspring. God's promise to Adam and Eve is now zeroed in and focusing on Abraham, and it'll be the offspring of Abraham, his son, who will be the one to reverse the curse, finally defeating Satan, sin, and death. These promises are initially made in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And in Genesis 15, we see the covenant ceremony. We see God make this covenant with with Abraham. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 15. You see, as I just mentioned, at the heart of this covenant that God is making with Abraham was the promise of a son. But at this point, Abraham and his wife, Sarai, They are both very old, Genesis is intentional to tell us, beyond the ages of giving childbirth. God here is promising Abraham and Sarah a son, but they are beyond the age of having son. And so Abraham just very naturally, just very humanly asks God, how do I know you're going to keep your promises? we've all been there, right? We look at the circumstances of our lives. We see these great things in scripture and we wonder how, how can I know, God, are you going to be faithful to your promises? How can I know? He's wondering how can God, how does he know that God's going to be faithful? And in response to Abraham's question here, his very understandable question, in the most dramatic way imaginable, God assures Abraham that he will absolutely be faithful to his promises. 
You see, in the ancient, ancient Near East here, when, when covenant ceremonies were enacted, it was very common for each person making the covenant to bring an animal or to bring a couple animals. And what they would do in this ceremony is they would, they would cut these animals in half, separating the pieces out wide enough for them to be able to walk through the pieces of the animals together. They would do this, and in effect, they would basically be saying as they walked through these pieces of these animals that have been cut in half, they're basically saying to one another, let what be, let what's, what's happened to these animals happen to me or happen to you if you fail to uphold your covenants. If you break your promises, it is basically saying, like, I will die if I do not keep my covenant promises. So, so this was common in the ancient Near East. And as we come to, Ab- to Genesis 15, we see the most amazing thing happen because when God and Abraham are going to, uh, to have this covenant ceremony, they're going to commit to one another rather than both Adam and uh, Abraham and God walking through the pieces of the animals together, God causes Abraham to fall into a deep sleep. And in Genesis 15, 17, we read, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Those are, those are symbols of God's presence here. The smoking fire pot and the flaming torch, they passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring, I will give this land. In walking through the pieces alone here, you could say that God is making an unbreakable vow with Abraham. Fans of Harry Potter will know exactly what I'm talking about here. In, in The Half-Blood Prince, uh, the sixth book of the Harry Potter series, in the beginning chapters, we see, we see Snape make an unbreakable vow with Narcissa promising her that he would help her son Draco, spoiler alert here, kill Dumbledore. He's ba- he makes this vow with Narcissa that if Draco is unable to kill Dumbledore, that he will step in and do it for Draco. He, he makes this promise to Narcissa, and as they do this, they, they have this ceremony where they make this unbreakable vow. And as the book unpacks the consequences for breaking the unbreakable vow, meant that you would die. In Harry Potter here, Snape is basically saying, if I don't do this, I'll die. If I don't do this, the punishment is death. And as we look to to Genesis 15, this is exactly the picture that God is showing us here. God is telling Abraham, he's telling all of us as we read his word, that if he fails to keep his promise to Abraham, that he would die. And so as we've seen with the covenants of creation, as we've seen with the covenant of Noah and this covenant with Abraham, um, what God's wanting us to see here is that he is absolutely faithful to complete his promises, that he is faithful to fulfill his promises. He made a promise to Abraham or to Adam. He made a promise to Noah. He's made a promise to Abraham. And as we read Genesis 15, we're to see that he will absolutely bring this promise to pass. And so from here, the story picks up. God is faithful to his promise to Abraham, and he has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob, who eventually becomes the nation of Israel. And after saving the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt, we see that God next makes a covenant 
with the nation of Israel. This covenant here is seen uh, most primarily in Exodus 19 to 24. And as we're tracking with the storyline here, as we see God make this covenant with the nation of Israel, we're meant to see that it is going to be through the nation of Israel, which God very intentionally calls his son. He refers to the nation of Israel as his son. It's going to be through the nation that, God promise, that God's promise to restore his people will come to pass. At the heart of this covenant are the, the Ten Commandments and the sacrificial system, which are meant to deal with the people's sinful hearts, because all along there's been this question of how can God be in relationship with his people if they continue, if they remain sinful. And so God, in this covenant with the nation of Israel, he gives them the Ten Commandments and he gives them the sacrificial system, a, a means in his grace by which his people can dwell with him, his people can be in relationship with him if they obey his word. But as we're following the story, just like with Adam, just like with Noah, just like with Abraham, we see that Israel, as God's son, they fail to keep their promises. The nation of Israel, we see, turns their back on God. They worship false idols. God's commandments and the sacrificial system couldn't solve the problem of the people's hearts. And so we are still looking for the promised son. We are still looking for the one who will finally and decisively be able to defeat Satan and to be able to bring us back into relationship with God. And as God's story continues, we keep moving here and we see um, in the next movement, the next covenant that God makes, we, get, we again get some clarity on who this son is is going to be because the son that God is promising isn't just going to be the son of Adam. He's not just going to be the son of Abraham, but he's also going to be the son of King David. We see this in the covenant that, that uh, God makes with David. If uh, you're still tracking along here with your Bibles flipping through there, you can turn to 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 7, we see that God makes a covenant with Israel's greatest king, King David. And at the heart of this covenant is God's promise to David of a son, the one who will be the king, the one who will rule over an everlasting kingdom, the one who will bring God's people into God's place under God's rule. It's the son of David who's going to do that. And as we see explicitly in verses 14 and 15 of, Genesis, of 2 Samuel 7, we see that this promised son is going to experience an intimate relationship with God. Just follow along as I read verses 14 and 15 and hear what God says about this promised son. God says, I will be to him, that is the son of David, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But with my steadfast, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, who I put away from before you. The answer to our problem here has finally arrived. We see that it's going to be the, through this son of David that God will solve the problem of the human heart, restoring us to our relationship with him. 
here with David, as we look at this covenant with David, we see that hopes are very high for Samuel, that perhaps Solomon is going to be this promised son, the one who will bring God's kingdom back into God's place, the, the king who will finally obey God, who will restore the relationship. But just as with all the other promised sons, we see that Solomon fails. And his sons fail even worse. And the story gets so bad that God eventually exiles his people from his, from his presence. God, the one who longs to be with his people, who longs to have his people in relationship with him because of the people's sins, they are exiled from the land of Canaan. They're exiled from God's presence. And at this point in the story, one thing should be very clear to us, and that is if God's promises are going to come to pass, if God's people are ever going to be restored to a relationship with him, that God's going to be the one to have to solve the problem for us. A mere human is not going to be the one to be able to solve this problem. We saw that the son of Adam, the son of Noah, the son of Abraham, the nation of Israel, the son of David, none of them were able to be this promised son, the one who would restore God's promise, and the one who would restore God's people, the one who would fulfill God's promises. And so as we see at this point, we see that if anything's going to happen, if God's people are ever going to be restored to a relationship with him, that God himself is going to have to be the one to do it. And this is exactly what we see as we turn to the last and greatest covenant here, the new covenant that God makes with his people. Uh, you don't need to turn there, but Jeremiah 31, along with Ezekiel 36, are just wonderful confidence-building, assurance-building passages as we look to who our God is for us. In, Gen in Jeremiah 31, we see the heart of God's new covenant with his people. And as I read this, I just want you to, to listen for the phrase, I will, as we see what God is promising to do for his people in the new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 33, this is what God says to his people. He says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. He says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Here in the new covenant, God promises to do for us what we've proven, what God's human mediators have proven that we can't do for ourselves, that, in, that God is going to forgive our sins. He's going to give us a new heart, give us the desire to obey him. This is truly amazing. And as we hear these promises, as we hear God telling us time and time again, I will, I will, I will do all of this, we need to be asking, how is this possible? How can God do this? And it's here that the story gets kicked up a notch because as we turn to the New Testament, we see that it is Jesus is the one who is going to make all of this possible. We see that God is going to be able to forgive all of our sins. God is going to defeat Satan's sin and death 
through his own son, through the gift of his own son, Jesus. You see, it's through Jesus, the one who is the mediator of this new covenant. It is through his life, death, and resurrection that God is going to solve the problem of our sin so that we can finally be restored to a relationship with him. We see this all throughout uh, the New Testament. We see this primarily in Hebrews. It's just a great book that is highlighting how Jesus here is the mediator of this new covenant. Um, But I just want to read a passage familiar to us, one that we hear read each Sunday as we take the Lord's Supper to help us see how Jesus is able to do this. Because in the Lord's Supper in Matthew 26, 27, when Jesus takes the cup, he says to his disciples, he says, drink from it, drink the cup. He says, all of you, for this cup is my blood, is the blood, for this is my blood of the covenant. There, that's of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Here is Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper. He is showing his disciples, he is showing all of us that he sees his death in light of God's new covenant. He knows that it is through his sacrificial death on the cross that he is going to prove to be the obedient son. He is going to fulfill all of God's promises and be the one to solve the problem of the people's sinful hearts. And he is going to be the one who can restore us back to relationship with God. We see this in it really throughout all of the, of the New Testament as the New Testament writers are just so intentional to show us uh, that Jesus is, is not just the mediator of the new covenant, but Jesus is the one who fulfills all of God's previous covenants. Paul says that Jesus is the last Adam. And, and Paul says that Jesus is the true son of Abraham. Matthew takes pains to show us that Jesus is the true Israel and to show us that Jesus is the greater son of David. As as we look to Jesus, we see that all of God's promises, all of God's covenants find their fulfillment in Christ. As we, we look to Jesus, we can look from beginning to end and we can see that all of the Bible, all of God's covenants, all of the promises that he has made with his people, they have all been about. Jesus. So we just very, very briefly flew over a big picture story of the Bible and we left lots out, but I hope that you are seeing this story of God, God's story of restoring his people to himself through his promised son. And then just, I just want to take a couple minutes here for us to, for us to highlight how God's story is meant to transform our stories. Because if we miss how God's story transforms our story, then it has just been an academic exercise. But God doesn't want that. The Spirit doesn't want that for you and for me. He wants his story seen through his covenants to deeply impact us and to transform the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves. We can see many things, but I want to highlight two things that I think God's story does for us. The first thing that God's story does for us is that it assures each of us here that we are objects of God's love. One thing I hope that you were seeing as we looked at each of the covenants is the way that God continually takes the initiative to enter into covenant relationship with his people. 
beginning with Adam and Eve and throughout all of the rest of the Bible, God is always taking the initiative to enter into a loving relationship with his people. This isn't forced. He's not obligated to do this, but it is something that he freely chooses to do for each one of us here. And this should just amaze us that God desires to be in relationship with us, that we here, if you are in Christ, if you have trusted in Christ, you are an object of God's love. Of God's love, He loves you because he chose to love you. God loves you because he loves you. And so I just want to ask, is this how you think about yourself? Is the fact that you're an object of God's love at the heart of the story you tell yourself about yourself. I think if we're honest, we all struggle with believing this. At least I know that I do. You might easily believe that this is true for other people. Perhaps you are skilled at pointing other people to God's love for them. But when it comes to your own story, when it comes to your own life, you're filled with doubt. Whether it's from the ways that you've, that you've sinned in the past, whether it's from the ways that you have messed up or anything else, when you think about your own life, you struggle to believe that God could ever love you. And it's here in, this mo- in these moments that we need God's story, that we need the story of God's covenants here to transform our story Because if you're here and if you're trusting in Jesus, God's story assures us that his love for us, the fact that we are objects of his love is not dependent upon us and it is not dependent upon our performance. God loves us, no strings attached. If you are here and you are in Christ, know that right now God loves you, no strings attached. He didn't enter into a contract with you, but he entered into a covenant with you. God doesn't promise to love you, to keep you around, to be in relationship with you as long as you're holding up your end of the bargain. God knew that that was not possible. He did everything necessary for you to be in relationship with him at the cross and resurrection. And through his spirit, he has drawn you to himself. Through the spirit, he has poured out his love into your hearts and you are an object of God's love this morning. And it has nothing to do with you, but everything to do with him. So we can rest this morning. This morning, if you are here, if you are just struggling to believe this, I just want to encourage you to look to God, to know that he loves you without all of your accomplishments. Our worth and our value don't come from what we think of ourselves. Our worth and our value don't come from what the world thinks of us, but they come from the fact that we are objects of God's love. We are those whom he has freely entered into covenant with. So in those moments when you're tempted to doubt this, and we will. I just want to encourage you to look to Jesus, look to the cross, and to see the breadth and the height and the length and the depth of his love for you. And in your doubting, pray to the Holy Spirit, the one who pours God's love into our hearts, and ask him to help you live in light of his love for you. We do this not in an effort to earn his love, but we do this as objects of his love. 
you're here and you are, are not a Christian, if you would not call yourself a Christian, you're here because someone dragged you here this morning, you're here because you are just interested in what this Christian thing is all about, I want to, I want to thank you. And I also just want to, um, as we look at God's covenants, just let you see that the, that the love that you long to experience does exist and we see it in Jesus. We, we, can, we can say that the human story is a story of looking for love in all the wrong places, but it's in the gospel that you will finally find what you're looking for. It's when we look to Jesus's life, death, and resurrection that we can see and we can receive and experience the love that you long to experience. So if that is you this morning, I just want you to hear God's invitation to you. He desires to be in a relationship with you. He's done everything that's necessary for you to come to him. He, uh, and he is just calling you to turn to him, trusting in what he has done for you. To do that this morning, become an object of God's love. So that's the first way that God's story is meant to transform our story, is it assures us that we're objects of God's love. And the second thing I just want to briefly see here is that God's story assures us that he will be faithful. The other drumbeat across all of God's covenants is not just that he loves his people, but that he is faithful. He is faithful to his promises. He is faithful to do everything that he has said he's going to do. From the initial promise to Adam and Eve throughout all of the, throughout all of the covenants, our hearts are meant to be amazed at God's covenant faithfulness to his people. The fact that God is faithful to his people and he is faithful to his promises. As we saw in Jeremiah 31, and you see it all over scripture, we see this phrase, I will. God is promising to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And in the covenants, in God's story, we see that he is absolutely committed to his people. He is absolutely committed to you. He is for you and for your flourishing. So I just want to ask you this morning, in the story that you tell yourself, is God faithful? I want to urge you, don't be too quick to, to answer that question. As you think about the circumstances of your life right now, as you think about your work situation, your housing situation, your relationship status, your family or your finances or whatever it is, as you consider the struggling and the suffering that you're experiencing right now, perhaps the depression or the despair that are hanging over you, in this story is God faithful. It's not such an easy question to answer as we reflect on our lives. But into our doubting and our questioning hearts, God has given us this story to assure our hearts that he is absolutely faithful to us, that he keeps his promises to us. So in the midst of the challenges of living life here in this fallen and broken world, we can have confidence that while life is not going to be easy, because God has never promised us an easy life, we can have confidence and we know that God will keep his promises to us, that he will be with us and he will see us through. And so whatever we're walking through, whatever you are struggling with right now, we can look to the promises of God where he tells us that he will never leave us or forsake us. We, we can look to his promises that nothing can separate us 
from the love of God. We can look to those promises no matter what is going on in our lives. And even in those moments when we struggle to believe it, we can look to God's covenants. We can look to Jesus and we can know for sure that God is going to be faithful. And so we can look to him and we can ask him, Lord, help me believe that that is true. As we look at God's covenants, as we look at God's promises, we can remember that he's making an unbreakable vow to us. He has made an unbreakable vow. He will be faithful to keep his promises. And so we just need to keep looking to Jesus, the one who fulfilled all of his promises and the one who has restored our intimate relationship with God. So this is, this is God's story. It is God's story of his steadfast love and faithfulness for his people that we see from the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2 all the way through to the end when Christ returns and will ultimately fulfill all of his promises. And this morning, I think God is inviting us to let his story of his steadfast love and faithfulness towards you transform the story that you tell yourself about yourself. Let God's story transform your story so that you can see it rightly and live into it rightly. Well, let me pray for us while the Lord's Supper team prepares to to serve the Lord's Supper as Scott comes down. Let me briefly pray for us. And before I do, why don't you just take a moment to reflect on where you need to be reminded of God's steadfast love and faithfulness towards you right now. And wherever that is, just turn to the Lord now in prayer, asking him to minister these truths to your heart, asking the Spirit for the grace to believe what you've heard and the faith to live in the good of it. Oh, Father, we thank you that you are a God who keeps covenant. You are the God of steadfast love and faithfulness towards us. And Holy Spirit, as I just mentioned, I pray, Lord, that you will give us, Lord, the faith to believe what we have heard this morning and the grace to live in the good of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.